Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister and host of the show, and you can check out everything we are doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, so this week I am joined by Alex Troughton, the founder and designer behind Archibald Cycles, to talk about his wild AC1 prototype, which not only is a high-pivot steel gearbox bike with a bunch of adaptability for different geometry and sizing and travel configurations, but is also going to be made in Canada. And Alex has got a lot of interesting stuff to say about the whole design process, the thinking behind the bike, and Canadian manufacturing, and what he hopes to do with the whole project. So this is a fun one and a lot of good stuff in here. But before we get into it, I do want to take a moment to encourage you to check out our Blister Plus membership and all of the great benefits that it confers, including the ability to drop us an email and ask about your next bike purchase or suspension setup or whatever it is that might be on your mind. We'll get you sorted out, get a bunch of great discounts on gear and a whole lot more. So there's a link in the show notes. Check that out. And with that, let's get right to my conversation with Alex Trotton of Archibald Cycles. Oh, well, Alex, great to sit down and chat here and kind of got a pretty interesting and I think fair to say a little bit unconventional bike that you've been working on to chat about. How are you doing and where are you this afternoon? Yeah, thanks, David. Uh, I'm at home right now, kind of a home shop set up for the moment, um, you know, fully, fully producing bikes here for a little while. Until, until things get scaled up a little bit and then kind of buying up uh, a few facilities nearby to move into. But uh, yeah, all the design and fabrication so far has been done right out of the home garage. So Right on. And you are in the midst of putting together production bikes then, I gather? Or? Yep. All righty. Well, well, yeah, we'll get into that in a whole lot more detail in a few here. But uh, sort of to start from the beginning, I suppose... Tell us a bit about where you started this whole project and what the design goals and intent were for the bike in the first place. Sure, yeah. Um, it's all kind of... I've been in the industry kind of almost almost 10 years now and started out working at Black Spire Designs and was doing, you know, pedal and changing stuff back there, uh, but always kind of wanted to, to push it a little further and ended up uh, leaving for engineering school and with that, got the opportunity to sort of roll a capstone project into this and ended up creating this out of that. And yeah, obviously, there was a lot of external work involved on that, um, but that really got the ball rolling. And since graduating, just really pushed it full time. And yeah, that's it's fully my day job now. So, you know, fully consumed me. Um, and it's just a kind of a constantly changing thing. Build a bike, refine the process a little bit, and, and keep going. Yeah, and we'll discuss the details of the bike in much more depth in a few. But when you were putting the first prototype together as this capstone project that you mentioned, was the intent from the beginning to really turn this into a company? Or did you just imagine that it was going to be a start of a project to build your own bike and things sort of snowballed more from there to be honest both kind of went hand in hand um this bike was always designed 
to satisfy everything I wanted out of a bike. But I kind of realized very quickly that there's a lot of people that want these same things. A lot of people kind of coin it the pink bike comment section bike because it's absolutely all the buzzwords and all the funny things. And, um, you know, so it definitely hits that. But it was pretty obvious that there's a lot of people out there interested. Um, So quickly, I kind of made sure that there was a brand being built at the same time. Mm -hmm. And, well, you kind of teed it up there, but tell us a bit about the bike and the, well, combination of buzzwords and trendy things that you've put together here. Where'd you start? The the real starting point for me was actually kind of just in, in starting on suspension analysis, seeing, and this was like five, six years ago, seeing that a high pivot platform really makes a lot of sense. Just just from analyzing the forces involved in an impact, like it it completely makes sense on the way the wheel needs to travel. Um, and so starting there was kind of what led me down the path to looking at a gearbox. Is the second that the idler wheel is involved, now the chain's got to go all over the place. And then if you can simplify that to basically be a single speed with a gearbox, uh, it lets you really package things nicely. Okay. So, yeah, we've got as you said gearbox high pivot bike and tell us more about what you see at high pivot doing so well in terms of dealing with forces as you put it and what were sort of the principal design goals that you were shooting for in terms of how you want the suspension to work yeah for sure and and to kind of preface this this is coming from you know living on the in sort of Vancouver area and riding North shore, like there's definitely a very specific kind of riding we're doing. Um, and so tailoring the bike to do that well was definitely part of the goal, which involves a lot of just square, sharp, rocky hits, you know, repetitive, just, you know, just on the wrong bike, it'll really destroy you. Um, but it's really nice with, and, and, you know, in testing, it turns out, yeah, the high pivot, it definitely, does operate differently like the behavior of the rear wheel is certainly different and there's other aspects to that involved in this design that we can get into but um yeah simply the the way that the wheel is able to react is it definitely takes a lot of the hit the sharp edge off the hit uh because it's able to swing out of the way so much easier it doesn't have to pull the suspension members into tension to actually take the hit it can translate it into the shock directly right and yeah i mean certainly having ridden up there plenty um yeah like you said lots of just kind of very square edge rock impacts and certainly plenty of places you can open up and carry some speed but quite a few spots too where things are tight and a little bit slower and you're just kind of trying to maintain momentum over a bunch of really weird rocky stuff and so okay we got bump absorption in there being a principal criteria but what else were you trying to make the bike do and on top of that i mean and sort of as part of that take us through just a bit bigger picture of where you've wound up with the design we've got the high pivot and you've incorporated the gearbox we'll talk about that more in a few but um run us through the high level stuff of the bike in a bit more detail yeah for sure um kind of to to dial it back a little bit is like i wanted i wanted a platform that was adaptable something that you could 
ride single track or you could set the bike up and go ride bike park all year right um so that was kind of really important for me to make something that could do both uh and you could kind of tailor the fit of the bike to the individual or even yourself depending on what you're feeling like um so that kind of led me to the the core of the bike it's it's sort of a large plate assembly that um it, the suspension is sort of constrained by one assembly which allows the rest of the bike to change around it without affecting the kinematics as much otherwise um and so that's pretty handy for being able to change from bike to bike and with the few bikes i've built we've been able to change the feel from a poppy jump bike to like a glued to the ground you know monster truck right and so depending on what you're feeling you can kind of change those levels and dial it in and what are you doing to make those sorts of changes between different bikes and how does that all come together the, the biggest thing is is suspension really uh suspension entire setup is like that that'll completely revolutionize the bike i mean being that the kinematics package here is very predictable um and so by that i mean like the leverage ratio that i use is a very straight line however it's quite progressive so it's it's very linearly progressive so across the whole stroke up to 200 millimeters of travel it's the same level of progression uh so basically you can then shorten up the shock stroke and end up with basically a different amount of progression on that curve and basically go and like on the shortest end of things you could run an air shock and have a super responsive light snappy bike meanwhile you've still got the same wheel arc right it's still traveling along that same path so you can you can refine the characteristics there right you can run really soft spring rate on a coil shock around 200 mil travel total monster truck or you could stiffen it up and go ride the park right okay and so what kind of a travel range are you imagining is going to be viable kind of across the potential range of configurations here i've already got setups working from 150 to 200 mil on the one rear platform um and i I haven't gone shorter travel than that just frankly i don't really feel the need to um i'm sure there are people out there that would love that but uh yeah just just haven't bothered to experiment with it yet could totally do it though right and so in order to change across even that wider range of travel configurations the 150 to 200 that you mentioned uh obviously you're you're changing shock stroke but then in order to accommodate those different i'm assuming you're covering more than one range of shock eye to eyes across that range and so what what swaps in order to yeah make all that happen for sure yeah so the uh, on that main uh suspension assembly i have there's two pickup points at the front on either side and those mount these shock plates i have which essentially have a press fit pin that presses into the main assembly and then there's a, a screw that retains everything so those plates change the end position of where the shock is. So essentially, you always use the same starting position of the shock connected to the rear rear end of the bike. However, like the free end of the shock 
can move anywhere in space. So I can change the shock length. I could technically change the shock progression a little bit. Uh, I, I don't really need to, but it's it's something that I can can play with as well, depending on the shock length and, and changing. Like if we want to run a trunnion shock, it's no problem. Right. Yeah. So basically, it's it's a effectively a bolt on forward shock mount that you can yeah exactly reconfigure and presumably if you wanted to you could make some at least within a limited window make some minor tweaks to geometry and stuff through that as well yeah for sure so talk about the rest of the bike i mean what are you building in terms of geometry wheel sizes etc how's kind of all the rest of that coming together for sure yeah um kind of two off the top things is like the bike is set up as a mullet and it's set up quite slack right that's it's quite slack with a very steep c2 angle it's it's an effective almost almost 80 degrees depending on depending on frame size essentially you know depending on where the seat height ends up um so it's basically set up for maximum descent but then the seating position puts you in this position where the bike pedals really well you know, on top of that, with the anti-squat being tuned as best as it can because the chain's in one position all the time and it I don't, I don't have to compromise. So so the bike can still pedal, yet it's set up with, you know, from like a 61.8 to a 63-degree head angle. Um, depend, we've, we've played with some setups. So quite slot. What about, uh, obviously, high-pivot suspension, but as far as the particulars of the layout and other kinematic details um what would you say are kind of the more salient points of what you've come up with yeah for sure uh the first two bikes we were experimenting with like a four bar setup um so it's sort of what people traditionally see as a four bar this some people refer to this as an inverted four bar but really it's still four bars um uh, doesn't really matter where the points are but uh you know, it's kind of the upside down look of what a horse link would look like. Um, uh, in the future, we're possibly moving to more of like a split pivot system. Um, just because essentially dropping that pivot point out is, lets us make the, the leverage curve more linear. It lets us tune the anti-rise a little bit more uh, and just isolate those braking forces a little bit better. Um, so, you know, it's just sort of sort of something we're playing with right now, possibly moving to. Mm-hmm. Okay. And um, then, well, as you've mentioned, you're building these yourself and have gone for a steel frame, aluminum links and some bits, but principally steel. Uh, mm-hmm. Tell us about the thinking there and what you sort of see as being the rationale for going that route. Yeah, for sure. The the big thing was sort of in that main, like getting into designing the bike, I started to quickly realize that design for manufacturability was really going to be the key because another part of the ethos here is like, this thing's got to be made in Canada. There's, there's no, there's no sacrificing that. There's no cutting corners there. Like it, it will be made here no matter how many we build. Um, and in doing that, obviously you have to be competitive, right? And to be able to build all the sizes and all the options we want still makes sense. It's exactly the right tool for this, for this job. Um, and sort of, you know, 
getting into it and building the first prototype and testing that theory, the ride feel was just amazing. Like there was, there was no turning back at that point. Once we tested it out and got people on it, the feedback is just, you know, the, the frame definitely feels different. Um, material, it's just, it's just good. Um, so, and, and to be honest, like the frame on its own is actually, you know, for steel, a lot of people are worried about weight. The frame weight's actually quite low. Right? We're sub four pounds on the front triangle, which is pretty comparable to a lot of carbon bikes. So, you know, it's it's pretty close. It's once you start adding like a gearbox and heavy tires and coil suspension, right? Like things things are going to go up anyways. So, um, but yeah, it was never an issue. So was never anything turning us away from steel construction. How much has the design evolved from the initial prototypes to where you're at at this point? And I'm you've mentioned potentially a move to more of a split pivot layout. So you're not still iterating, fair to say, but talk us through what the first prototypes looked like and what's changed since then. Yeah, for sure. The first, first prototype was quite close. Um, you know, geometry was pretty well close. I built that one as a 475 mil reach, um, smaller than what I should ride, but in order to get people testing, you know, other people riding the bikes, uh, it definitely made sense. Um, so I did that. And then the things that have really changed have just been refining the details of the bike because the suspension kinematics, it was two or three years of design and study to get that dialed in and i think i got pretty close i haven't really wanted to make many changes since then um and so those details have been quite small refinements since the first version but the construction of the bike has been refined and it's sort of you build one and and understand how the process can be improved and then keep building on that how much experience did you have in the sorts of fabrication needed to build a frame going into this whole project. I mean, you mentioned working at Blackspire, but that's, you know, machining and welding tubular structures are rather different things. And uh, Yeah, no. Um, some background there is, um, there's kind of a few ways that story goes, but um, I've been pretty f- deep into like race cars and, and building, building car parts for a long time. I've got a 1988 300ZX that I, built a turbo manifold for it's like you know it's like 17 years old and was what first first tig welding project um so did that years ago and then um essentially when i went to school i ended up getting a job at a metal fab company and was uh, engineering project manager for essentially a huge amount of steel fabrication projects so i've got a lot of experience firsthand at seeing how those processes scale and understanding kind of the costs in the background and getting really, really up close view of what's going on. So I sort of built the hand skills on my own doing personal projects and then saw the other side of it in the in the day job. About how many prototype iterations have you gone through at this point? Technically, there's three frames, but they've all had changes. So probably, probably on like version five or six at this point. Um, and there's going to be essentially three more prototypes built quite quickly um, before the first batch of 10 production frames. Okay. Uh, and so 
I mean, yeah, you've, you've mentioned the potential change to the moving the rear pivot concentric to the axle, the split pivot arrangement. Take us through kind of what you've refined. You mentioned some of the construction and design for manufacturability as being bigger changes rather than anything to do with kinematics and what have you. But take us through some of what you've been doing there in more detail. Just interested to hear kind of how that's all going and what's changed. For sure, yeah. Um, a big part of the design for manufacturability started on the basis of um, essentially laser cut plates to get positional accuracy between points. And then anything that needs a good fit or a good location or a third dimensional um, tolerance held would be done with a lathe turned part. So both of those operations can be done on very high scale, very efficiently. They're, they're not high cost. Like if you were to machine this box out of a big chunk of steel, it would be extremely expensive. There's no, no way we could afford to build bikes. So that was kind of the starting point and refining how we do that is the key, right? Like if we can reduce the number of parts and reduce the amount of welding, then that's ideal. Um, and so refining how the gussets fit together inside the box, uh, refining some of the pieces, you know, maybe it's like a one, one cut part and one lathe part. That might be a part that maybe is better on the mill, right? So a few parts have switched over to being machined on the mill instead of a cut and turned part pressed together kind of thing. So, um, it's, it's a lot of stuff like that. Um, little things like material selection for long-term, you know, corrosion resistance. It's like anything that has to have an exposed face shouldn't be done out of chromoly, right? It's, it's going to rust. Um, um, you know, there's options there too. Like, well, we could probably electroplate or electroless nickel plate things. Uh, it just depends on if it's available. So totally refining so that the bike is a last forever kind of thing. Talk to us a bit about geometry. You've mentioned head angle. You talked about it being dedicated mullet, but what are some of the other things you got going on there? For sure. Yeah. Um, a part of this rear end change is actually working on sort of a, a 29 accessible rear end. Uh, that's, that's one thing. Uh, you know, a lot of people are interested in that. Some kinds of riding it lends itself to anyways. Um, but on top of that, uh, it's going to essentially, we'll be able to build out a longer rear chainstay. Um, so then for certain riders, it'll make sense to go to a long chainstay. And it completely depends on what ride you're looking for. So it's kind of part of that process of us dialing in for each customer. But it'll be an option that we could potentially lengthen the rear end. Um, being a high pivot, the rear end already lengthens through travel. So it's kind of a, technically our wheelbase actually maintains length through the travel overall. Like the average wheelbase remains constant, which is pretty cool. Pretty different for most bikes. Right. As in, as the front wheel comes back because the fork sat an angle, the rear's lengthening in concert. Yeah. Right. Um, okay. Interesting. Um, so, are we talking basically fully rearward travel through the entirety of the range then for the rear axle path, or is it coming back forward a bit by the end? Fully rearward. Um, On a 200 millimeter setup, you go, it it is slightly less rearward at the end, right? Technically the arc is starting to point slightly forward at the end, but it's still very far, far behind. 
Yeah, sure. And for the mullet setups that you've been running thus far, what kind of chainstay length have you been been running? What are you experimenting with there? So we've been trying, um, and a part of this is kind of looking for the bike to not only be glued to the ground, but also a lot of us are, we want to jump bike and we want it to be playful. So we shorten the chainstay as much as we can and run a, a 435. We could go a little shorter, but 435 mil chainstay on all of our bikes has been pretty fun to play with um because you know it's it's really poppy like you could set it up with a sl- stiff spring rate run higher in the sag and then you end up with a very short chainstay at sag but if you go softer and you run more sag you end up lengthening the rear end automatically right so if you soften it you get two things you get a softer rear end and a longer chainstay so you just add stability and suppleness right so it's it's exactly kind of what you expect out of going to that softer spring rate, right? So in stiffening it, like you kind of just change the the handling characteristics along with the suspension feel. So that's where we've kind of felt that the short chainstay is actually beneficial here. Now it's short at sag, or sorry, it's it's short at static. At sag, it's like four hundred fifty five with thirty percent sag, right? So that's pretty long. You know, that's it's starting to get kind of in line with a lot of these new bikes that are lengthening anyways. Um, so it's it's kind of in a happy place where you can position it where you want and then the characteristics of the bike take care of the rest. Yeah, that note about being able to kind of change the dynamic geometry and uh, handling characteristics based on sag variations is an interesting one. But yeah, given the quite rearward axle path and how much that's changing over the course of travel. That makes a bit of sense. Uh, and so, well, we've already talked about the fact that you are running a gearbox, but tell us more about the rationale there and which version or versions you've been experimenting with and kind of a bit more about how that's all going. For sure. Yeah. Uh, we've pretty well tested everything at this point. Um, we haven't quite, tried any of the belt drive variations yet but working on that um but mostly we've been riding the effigure mimic which is it's a nine speed trigger shifted box uh and then i also have on my personal bike opinion c1.9 xr so it's it's like a 570 percent gear range gearbox but it's got a trigger shifter um Pinion though has just come out with the smart shift system. So it's a battery operated trigger shifter that it, it in testing, it's actually been pretty extraordinary. Um, ridden a few other bikes with it on and have a few on order um, because it takes the sort of negative of gearboxes, which takes a lot of getting used to is this, this not, not able to shift under load that's really an issue for a lot of people mentally. Like they just can't get over that. Right. It's you got to completely change when you're shifting. Um, so that's been something that my test riders totally got used to it. Although they're on a trigger shifter with the effigure, like they can shift while they're riding through a rock garden and the gear is just ready when they get on the other side of it. Right. You don't have to pedal. So that's very good. But what happens when you get to a punchy climb? and you forgot to shift 
now you're kind of in trouble and you kind of have to time your shift, right? You kind of have to go power, let off power, make the shift. So that gets a little tricky, but the the new smart shift system is pretty much anytime you want a gear change, you can mash that button as many times as you want and it'll just jam it into gear. Um, it's pretty wild to ride it. Like it's, it's a more aggressive shift than you can make on even the new transmission stuff. Like when they talk about shifting under load, that's not even close to what the electronically shifted gearbox can do. It's just crazy. Interesting. I've not been on one of those yet. The smart shift that is. Um, so that's intriguing, but uh, yeah, cause I have not, not yet managed to get on one of them. Um, and so are you imagining that this, opinion smart shift is going to be what you go forward with in production or planning to have options or what's the thinking there for sure it's it's probably going to be kind of the the peak option like best thing you can get uh and most people will probably lean for that um but having options available is definitely nice and like the fact that effigure is available gives customers an out where opinion is all sold out effigure is still available one or the other you know depending where you live it might be easier to get parts for the effigure um so it's kind of a personal decision it's a simpler no batteries just trigger shifter right so that's that's definitely got its benefits it's a little lighter you know you don't have a battery and you don't have the electronic actuator um so i can see people leaning to that Uh, maybe even people that are coming from gearboxes may be just interested in that um but likely the grip shift option will probably be the thing that's phased out uh, you know mm-hmm. it'll probably be smart shift or effigure so sure and do you have a sense of what the price premium for the smart shift is going to be i've not actually really looked into what what those are running yeah it's it's hard to say right now since it's so early on like they're basically only opening pre-orders even for oems um you know, it's probably a few hundred dollars more, but yeah, not, you know, not really anything crazy. Just kind of like that next step up in drivetrain, which is, you know, not sure. unheard of. Um, no, perfectly standard to have some tiered options there. So yeah, fair enough. Just was curious. Uh, and you mentioned plans to experiment with belt drive, but haven't quite done it yet. Just curious for your obviously preliminary at this point thoughts on what you are looking to see there and what your general train of thought is on belt versus chain drive for that kind of layout. Yeah. It's, you know, we, we always get the comments of it, you know, where's, where's the belt drive when's the belt drive coming. And to be honest, the chain drive has been so reliable because our chain line doesn't change, right? It's, it's one chain line. We can just run, a super strong 11 speed we can run a 10 speed we can run a single speed chain like it doesn't whatever you want and they're super available any bike shop's going to have chain right and you can run a standard length chain on this bike because it's, it's it might be high pivot but it's not actually a long chain path um so it's been very reliable super easy to maintain and frankly low maintenance like my chain's sitting outside rusty right now because i don't even maintain it it's just like go ride the bike you know so it's shockingly reliable. Um, and in theory, the belt drive is also supposed to be that way. 
maybe with less maintenance than the chain, right? It can't can't rust. So you don't need to lubricate it. You hose it off and it's good to go. So that's something that's definitely appealing. The other thing is the efficiency in mud that you can get out of a belt drive is something that starts to actually beat the efficiency of a chain. And we have pretty wet winters here. And when your chains start to get packed full of mud, you definitely notice it no matter what bike you're riding, right? Yeah, that's one of the things that I'm most curious about with a belt drive, having really not spent any significant amount of time on one, is whether or how much of an improvement it actually makes on that front. And sort of just anecdotally here, frankly, kind of conflicting things on that front. You got people saying it's great in mud and works super well. The sort of prevailing wisdom amongst uh, motorcycle people is that belt drives are for kind of street bikes that are never going to see dirt and dirt bikes are all using chains. So um, I just feel, you know, I don't, I don't, I really don't know um, having yet to try them, but it'll be interesting to see how that goes as you're able to, get some more time on that setup and see how it goes. But the point about a, what is, you know, effectively a single speed chain arrangement, uh, being already pretty straightforward and reliable and not needing a ton of fuss certainly checks out and seems like it'd be an improvement over a derailleur system on that front. So, you know, how much headroom is there to improve? We'll see. Yeah, exactly. And it's, you know, it's kind of either way, like the system's going to work well. Like, you know, the, the biggest benefit to doing this chain routing is like we take all of that weight off the rear wheel, right? And sure, the gearbox overall is heavier, but it's literally stuck between your feet. And the rear wheel suddenly weighs nearly, since the mullet, my rear wheel plus chain actually weighs the same as my front wheel. So when you look at sort of the reactive forces of those wheels, they can behave so differently to a standard bike because all of a sudden it's like you've got this chainless feeling where the rear wheel is just light. And so belt or chain either way, you've got a light wheel that doesn't have anything slapping around. Mm -hmm. Right. And you've taken a ton of unsprung weight off of it. So yeah, better just ability for that to react because less mass to get moving to make the suspension go anywhere. Certainly, that checks out. Where are you on the timeline to starting to open up production and take orders and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, we're pretty well looking to kind of start taking orders in December or January with a kind of a more specific timeline to come soon. But um, yeah, the shop is ready to go. Uh, kind of setting up a few new tools and making sure that we're ready for high volume production, getting tube sets on order now, you know, so some material is on the way. Um, parts are going to be machined pretty soon and, you know, we'll just start, start pumping bikes out pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. And well, for folks who are potentially interested in getting in on that, um, just head to the website and kind of, put your name down or what's the the plan there yeah we've got a pretty massive wait list going on right now um 
but of course go put your name down uh, there, there's a sign up list basically sign up add your email um there's a there's a contact submission form directly ask you know if you're super interested you can get the ball rolling that way um dm us on instagram um you know we constantly have have requests and people people wanting to get started so and the thing is like sure the first batch is going to be 10 but the next one will be going right away you know so we'll be we'll be rolling in quickly and as quick as we can um and essentially like early to mid next year we'll be in a different shop and then ready to do kind of five times the volume per batch. So I think we'll go ahead and sign up and we'll be able to fulfill it pretty quickly. All right. Yeah. Um, that sounds like that's moving right along. And you did mention, uh, well, moving into a different shop and talking to some other folks about scaling up production into a greater volumes than you're able to do out of the garage at the moment. Um, are you imagining that you're going to be building out your own bigger shop or working with a contract frame builder for it? Or what's the line of thinking there? Yeah, it'll be, it'll be fully my shop. And, uh, I've done a lot of shop setup in the past, you know, at the company I was at, did a lot of, did a lot of work setting up a whole new machine shop. And anyway, so the, the logistics behind outfitting the shop is no big deal. Um, so that'll be, That'll be kind of on my hands and fully in-house and kind of a big enough shop that we can grow into it over the next five years. Uh, kind of on the idea that, you know, the volume we'd like to hit one day will be somehow able to be inside of that shop. Um, and hopefully as we grow, we bring more processes in-house, you know, like we don't have laser cutting done in-house now, obviously. I don't have a laser in my backyard. Um, but, you know, those are the kind of things that we'll definitely bring in-house eventually. Right on. And I guess something that we've talked about with a number of people on the show, various points, who've started a company building something new is sort of this tension between wanting to do something that is very distinctive and different and both the thing that they want to make but also something that feels like it really stands apart from the existing market as a point of differentiation, but then needing to balance that with not making something that is so radical and different that getting the market to accept it becomes a challenge because people just can't get their head around it. And so how have you approached thinking about that and how has it felt coming out with what is, I think it's fair to say, you know, a an unconventional bike between the gearbox and steel full suspension bike, though there are certainly far more of those cropping up of late than there were even just a couple of years ago and pretty radical geometry, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I think the, the biggest thing about that is that to be honest, the bike sells itself. You know, if, if you get out and ride the bike or, you know, someone who rode the bike, they'll tell you it's the fastest, most fun thing they've had. And hey, they get to put it away in their garage wet, covered in mud, and they don't care. It just works. So it's really pretty easy for the bike to just kind of do that. And frankly, a lot of people right now are after a bike that does stand out. So it's kind of twofold. Like the bike is just, <laughs> it does its own marketing. Um, 
And yeah, you know, as the word spreads, it really, I think, kind of just catches on like wildfire. Yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, it's like you said, kind of uh, maybe a bit of a double-edged sword in that you make something different and perhaps it won't appeal to everyone, but it also has the potential to more strongly resonate with the folks who it's apt to land with. And you just, yeah, need to need to find your niche there. How about the name Archibald? Where did that come from? Yeah, sure. That's uh, quite a, I guess you could say long backstory just due to the history of it. But uh, essentially my family is originally from uh, Nova Scotia and the Archibald family. So my last name is Troughton. It's not Archibald, but my mom was an Archibald and I was the last direct descendant of this family line who essentially came over to Canada and this was a couple hundred years before Canada was Canada sort of established industry in Canada, uh, the mining industry and lots of other industries in Nova Scotia got a lot of things going. And then sort of eventually um, my great, great grandfather ended up signing confederation for a few different provinces. Um, And so that, that bloodline was kind of, you know, directly passed down and and that sort of very Canadian heritage, you know, there's only the people who were here before are really, they're way more Canadian, but obviously, um, you know, so that's kind of the, it's interesting. Like I lost the name, but wanted to bring it back. And um, I felt this was the right, right thing to do. Embrace the Canadian manufacturing and use my Canadian name. Right on. Okay. I like that. Uh, and, well, you've mentioned a few times, you know, the importance of manufacturing in Canada to you and the fact that you've put a lot of thought into kind of design for manufacturability stuff to make doing so affordable. Um, do you have at least a rough idea of what you're imagining for pricing on bikes at this stage? We're kind of at this point looking to be in line with other basically high-end bikes it's kind of where we'd like to be now like frame only should be pretty affordable um locked in pricing isn't exactly clear yet due to the fact that like you can't really sell a frame only without a gearbox with a gearbox bike so you're kind of looking at frame plus gearbox pricing um and you know maybe you throw a shock in there but kind of in the six thousand canadian dollar range something six seven thousand you know so and that's with a gearbox being, a, you could say a gearbox is equivalent price to like an XX drivetrain. Right? It's it's the top of the line. <laughs> like, there's no cheaper gearbox available. Um, so that's kind of what you have to consider. Um, but yeah, complete bikes, you know, hopefully ranging from the just under 10,000 Canadian to depending. Like if you want to run EXT or intend suspension, then sure, right? But it's kind of, it's not a comparison you can make. Yeah, sky's always the limit. It's the it's the where things start that's sort of more relevant in a lot of ways. But yeah, yeah. I mean that makes sense. Your gearboxes are expensive. There's sort of no getting around that at some point if that's the direction you're going. So, as you said, relatively in line with high end stuff and. Um, being able to do that with making it all in Canada is pretty cool. I mean, maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves here, but 
do you sort of imagine additional models coming down the line or does it sort of feel like you've got a platform that's sufficiently adaptable with the travel options and stuff that you've described already that it mostly covers the bases that you want it to and you can iterate on that general platform and tweak it a bit but kind of have things covered there yeah definitely mostly that mostly that this platform will be it's going to be what we do um if you know if there is something else it might be you know like i'm i ride dirt jumps all the time and you know it's kind of annoying not having my own dirt jump frame so i might just go and do that it's not going to be part of the business model maybe we sell a few but it's not going to be you know it's not going to be something a big part of the business um you know but yeah, kind of eventually as this goes along you know we're looking at this kind of tailored fit option right now we're in the beginning we're building low volume we may as well make the bikes perfect for each rider later on it probably makes sense to just offer off-the-shelf sizing and you know once the volume's there you can get people pretty close and if they want custom maybe it's additional but then you could get your base price down a little bit right and start offering more entry level right it's just right off the gate you know people aren't really looking for like entry level and custom bike fit it's not they don't normally go hand in hand um so you know it's that's kind of where i see the business expanding is just into like off the shelf sizing different spec levels um yeah that's that's probably more in line with what we'll end up doing sure and well i guess on the the note of that tailored sizing line of thinking um how custom are we talking here kind of what would the what would the scope of the menu look like i'd say definitely the biggest part of that is being able to tailor the amount of travel first of all amount of travel is like that's something that we can do that normally people don't you know normally people have one or two options but but we can get you set up right where we think you should be and then kind of on top of that is we'll we can get your reach sizing you know, we'll get you a recommended and then figure out from there, uh, you know, what kind of riding style you're looking for. Maybe you should size up or down and we'll get that sized right where we want it. Um, and then kind of like head tube length and play around with that because even like I'm a taller guy, but I run a pretty low front end just because I like a longer fork. Give me more travel, but a shorter head tube still runs a low front end bike. It's still playful, you know, that kind of thing. So some people want to be more upright. And then we'll probably essentially have, you know, the head tube angle is going to be plus or minus a little bit, um, but it's going to be pretty close. Like the ride feel of the bike will be more affected by the parts you put on it, right? Like the, the character of the bike will still be there. It's just going to fit you properly and we'll get that sorted. You're not trying to turn the bike into something radically different and open up the range of options so wide but have a bit of flexibility for people to tweak to suit which makes sense you know for made to order kind of semi-custom we could probably call it yeah exactly um right on yeah well any other final notes on the whole project we should touch on i feel like that's been covered most of what i wanted to hit on but anything to take us home here I think we got we got most of it pretty well. Um, I think just yeah, it's uh, 
it's just kind of exciting to get people out on these things and you know just just you gotta feel it so definitely we're looking to to probably get some like demo days going once we built up a decent fleet um you know so maybe look forward to that but uh yeah keep in touch and maybe we'll get you out on one of these things sometime and that'd be great would, would certainly be interested in making that happen so uh we'll be in touch hopefully that can can happen down the line here and thanks for coming on this has been a lot of fun for sure thanks for thanks for having me on david all right that's it for this edition of bikes and big ideas and as always we would very much appreciate you leaving us a rating or review to keep the show going and growing i'd also like to say thanks to alex for the conversation thanks to taylor ahern for producing the episode and thanks to you for listening from all of us at blister please take good care of yourself and everybody else and we'll be back again next week Bye, everybody.